The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, March 2nd. In today's news, Joe Biden moves to capitalize on his win in South Carolina. Pete Buttigieg drops out. And Thomas Jefferson's hometown won't celebrate his birthday. Instead, it will mark the end of slavery. But first, the big idea. The coronavirus has been circulating undetected and has possibly infected scores of people over the past six weeks in Washington state. That's according to a genetic analysis of virus samples that has sobering implications for the entire country amid heightening anxiety about the likely spread of the disease. Researchers conducted genetic sequencing of two virus samples. One is from a patient who traveled from China to Snohomish County in mid-January and was the first person diagnosed with the disease in the United States. The other came from a recently diagnosed patient in the same county, a high school student who hadn't traveled outside the state and had no known exposure to the coronavirus. The two samples look almost identical genetically, according to Trevor Bedford, a computational biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. He believes we're facing an already substantial outbreak in Washington state that wasn't detected until now due to the narrow case definition requiring direct travel to China to get screened. Officials in Seattle and King County on Sunday announced that four more people have tested positive for the coronavirus, including the second person in the state to die. That brings the outbreak in Washington state to 13 cases. Of the four new cases, the three surviving patients range in age from their 70s to their 90s, have underlying health conditions, and are now in critical condition. Health officials in Washington state and across the nation say they expect that numbers will continue to rise in the wake of the decision by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last week to widen the guidelines for testing. Over the weekend, new cases were reported in Americans who had recently traveled to South Korea and Italy, including one person in Rhode Island, that state's first case. Late Sunday night, the office of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced two presumptively positive cases of the coronavirus in Manatee and Hillsborough counties and declared a public health emergency. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo confirmed that state's first case of the virus and also declared an emergency. The research reported by Bedford where they did the genetic testing is preliminary and further analysis could alter the conclusion. Bedford says it's possible but very unlikely that the genetic similarity of the two virus samples could be a coincidence and reflect two distinct introductions of the virus into Snohomish County by infected travelers rather than sustained person-to-person spread within the community. The CDC has been in touch with Bedford, and although agency experts note that his hypothesis has validity, scientists at the agency say they need more data. Clinicians always have discretion to request tests for the coronavirus, the CDC has said. A top CDC official testified last week that no such requests for testing have been turned down. But we heard from a 56-year-old woman in Chevy Chase, Maryland, who recently returned from northern Italy, where the virus has spread dramatically, and who has suffered from a cough and flu-like symptoms for 10 days now. She says that she could not get a coronavirus test at a hospital because she wasn't hospitalized or severely ill. But she's afraid that she has the virus, and she's trying to quarantine herself to prevent herself from spreading it. Back in the other Washington, 
Kirkland has suddenly become the epicenter for the federal response to the virus. For those who don't know Kirkland, it's an outdoorsy city of 90,000, just northeast of Seattle. It's known for its piney woods, its water sports, and a Google campus with a lovely but meandering bike path running through it. On Sunday, one church in the city canceled communion and banned handshakes and hugs. More than two dozen firefighters and some police officers are now under quarantine, and the local hospital urged visitors to stay home and avoid coming in if necessary, if possible, I should say. And Lake Washington Institute of Technology said it is shutting down for two days so that the entire campus can be disinfected. With a quarter of the city's firefighters under quarantine, Kirkland City officials are scrambling to prepare amid a host of other unknowns. For example, it remains unclear how many residents have been exposed to the virus, though its spread seems inevitable. Mayor Penny Sweet who prepared homemade peanut brittle and toffee to deliver to quarantined firefighters and police officers, says the city is following the advice of public health professionals in the CDC. She says the city's working to limit exposure and that she hopes the spread can be contained. She says they'll do whatever they need to to make that happen. Meanwhile, lines formed at shopping centers across the city as residents bought paper towels, disinfecting wipes, and hand sanitizer amid growing reports of the virus spreading through Washington State, Oregon, and California. Some people rushed to big box stores to stock up on medication, jars of pasta sauce, and cleaning supplies. Instead of shaking hands, people are waving at one another, attempting to stand a respectful six feet apart. That's the CDC-suggested distance to avoid possible transmission. City manager Kurt Triplett says that come Monday, Kirkland residents are going to start seeing signs around town encouraging elbow bumps instead of handshakes. He says we may be seeing the end of the handshake altogether. Sadly, the virus also continues spreading globally. South Korea announced today that it has detected 476 new cases, more than double the tally reported in China over the same period. With 4,200 confirmed infections and at least 22 deaths now, South Korea has the second largest national caseload from the outbreak. However, it's also tested more than 100,000 people, far more than other nations. Italy now has 1,600 confirmed cases. Iran is nearing 1,000 with 50 more deaths yesterday. Elsewhere, Indonesia, one of the few large nations that had been thought to be free of the virus, announced on Monday that it has two confirmed cases. And in China, the number of new cases was 202, bringing its total to more than 80,000, including 2,900 deaths. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, Buoyed by his landslide in the South Carolina primary on Saturday, former Vice President Joe Biden made the case more explicitly that he is the only Democrat who can stop Bernie Sanders from winning the nomination. Several influential Democrats from states that vote on Super Tuesday also gave Biden a lift on Sunday as they endorsed him, including former Senator Barbara Boxer of California and Virginia, Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton, who won her suburban district in 2018, turning the seat blue for the first time in 38 years, also endorsed Biden. She called him a steady, empathetic leader who can help Democrats hold the House. Biden's efforts are rooted in his campaign's belief that he needs to use the burst of momentum and attention from South Carolina to rally Democrats to his side before Tuesday's elections, when 14 states in one territory will award 34% of all the delegates to the convention this summer. Biden has lagged behind rivals in organizing and fundraising for months. He hasn't been on TV in many of the states that are voting, unlike his opponents, but he thinks momentum can counteract that. Biden is attempting to make up for past efficiencies with a round robin of television appearances. He's flooding the zone, and he's contrasting his centrist approach with Sanders' pitch for a revolution, 
especially on Medicare for All. Sanders is polling strongly in many of the Super Tuesday battlegrounds, and former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising in those states. It'll be the first time he appears on the ballot. For many of Biden's allies, Bloomberg, a billionaire centrist, remains their biggest headache. They're hopeful that he may soon decide to bow out if he doesn't do well on Tuesday. On Sunday, the Biden campaign circulated a clip from MSNBC in which David Pluff, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign manager, said, quote, the reality is Bloomberg needed Biden to lose South Carolina to have any real chance. Although Biden's campaign would welcome a narrowed field, several of his allies are also informally telling allies of Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren to stay in the race until at least Tuesday night to deny Sanders a major delegate hall in the Super Tuesday states that they represent, Minnesota and Massachusetts. Sanders' campaign aides say that he's ready to make gains with younger, more liberal African-American voters in southern states like North Carolina, and they've argued that South Carolina was far older and more moderate than most of the states that are voting on Tuesday. Bloomberg has attempted to make inroads with African-American voters, but he's encountering continuing problems over his past support for stop and frisk, the police strategy that opponents say is a form of racial profiling. Before announcing his candidacy, Bloomberg apologized for defending that practice for so many years. As Bloomberg spoke on Sunday in Selma, Alabama, at Brown Chapel AME Church, about 10 people stood and silently turned their backs on him. They returned to their seats after the former mayor stepped away from the podium. The incident caused a stir in the church, but Bloomberg continued his remarks without interruption. Other attendees continued to listen, some cheering and applauding. Sanders, meanwhile, went to California, the biggest delegate prize on Tuesday. He spoke to crowds of thousands in Northern California and Southern California, and he's also focusing hard on Texas, which is the second biggest delegate hall where he's been building an organization since his insurgent 2016 campaign. Polls show that Sanders is favored to win in both California and Texas. Sanders also said Sunday that he's raised $46.5 million in the last month. Biden's campaign said last night that it raised $10 million bucks this weekend. While he was campaigning in San Jose yesterday, Sanders stepped up his criticism of Biden over his backing of military intervention in Iraq and his past support for free trade. The senator from Vermont also attacked Biden as a tool of the wealthy and centrist Democratic establishment that he is trying to supplant. Number two, Pete Buttigieg, the 38-year-old former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who saw a meteoric rise from virtual unknown to top-tier contender, narrowly winning the Iowa caucuses, apparently, although it's in dispute, and becoming the first openly gay candidate to make a high-profile presidential run. He's ended his campaign, and he's confronted the reality that his prospects of victory had all but collapsed. Buttigieg struggled to win support from black voters, a key pillar of the Democratic coalition, and a vulnerability that was emphasized in South Carolina, where he finished fourth. Buttigieg called Biden shortly after news of his departure broke, according to two Biden aides. They say the candidates exchanged voicemails, but haven't connected yet. Buttigieg made history by becoming the first openly gay candidate to earn delegates for the presidential nomination in a major party. He also broke barriers by making his marriage to his husband, Chastin, a major part of that campaign. Chastin normally joins his husband on stage after rallies, but Saturday night, the Buttigieg's lingered a little bit longer than usual and hugged, a rare sign of the emotional toll the campaign was taking on Pete, who knew the end was near. Chastin was the first on stage at Buttigieg's South Bend event on Sunday where he dropped out, and he delivered an emotional introduction in which he told the crowd that his husband had helped him believe in himself again, and that he urged him to run for president because, quote, I knew there were other kids in this country who needed to believe in themselves, too. The normally stoic Pete Buttigieg appeared to be steadying himself throughout his farewell remarks in his hometown. 
bringing to an end what was for a time an electrifying candidacy and preserving his options for the future. Indeed, the crowd chanted 2024 over and over again as he conceded. Number three, Thomas Jefferson's name still adorns much of the city of Charlottesville, from the public library to a private winery, and from the foot of a mountain dedicated to him, his statue still gazes out over the university he founded. But lately, in ways small and seismic, if you've been down there lately, Jefferson's town has started to feel like it belongs to someone else. For the first time since World War II, Charlottesville won't honor the founding father's birthday this spring. Instead, on Tuesday, the city will celebrate the demise of the institution with which Jefferson has become increasingly associated, slavery. Liberation and Freedom Day, as this new holiday is known, will commemorate when Union troops arrived in Charlottesville on March 3, 1865, and freed the enslaved people who made up a majority of Charlottesville's residents. It is not your father's Virginia. They're calling it the New Dominion. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, March 2nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.